Well, it's good to see you all. All I want for Christmas is a little space. That really caught my attention as I saw it this week in the Wall Street Journal. And basically it's talking about uh, introverts and extroverts and how Christmas is a time for extroverts. Parties and gatherings and stuff. So um, this article uh, is actually going to give, give some advice for introverts. So those of you, by the way, I, I heard that more than 50% or right around 50% of Americans are introverts. So I thought there's got to be some introverts in here this morning. So you guys can listen up. Um, here's some strategies, all right? And um, I'm going to share these with you. So the party's getting loud, and, and uh, here's one strategy, and that is called the uh, bathroom breakaway. <laughs> Almost every introvert employs this strategy. Party gets too much, and your head feels like it's going to explode. Your smile has gone past, uh, frozen to petrified, and your chit-chat well has run dry, and so you go to the bathroom. You shut the door. You sit down and you breathe. You're all alone. It's quiet. Nobody can reach you. And it feels good. <laughs> all right, then there's another one, and that's the kitchen counterattack. This is when you rush to the kitchen, you grab paper towels, and you start cleaning the counters, whether they're dirty or not. You just keep wiping. Get away from everybody. Then you have the bookshelf dodge. This is when you kind of wander to where the books are and kind of look to the titles, you know, one by one, and just leave the party alone and, you know, just get some space. And then there's the cheerful retreat. This is when you put on a big smile and you tell the people, you know, um, it's been great, but we got to go. You pretend like you're going to another party, but you're actually going home to put on your pajamas and go to bed. Then we have the uh, fitness withdrawal, and that is, you know, your family's there, the kids are there, the grandkids are there, they're all screaming, and, you know, it's getting pretty noisy, and you say, I'm going to go for a walk. (laughs) And then you have the um, crowd camouflage. This is when you want to get away, and you go to the mall, and you just become one in the crowd there. Nobody knows you, and you quietly kind of spend some time, nobody to talk to, just being by yourselves, one in a crowd. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the supermarket sacrifice. Oh, Grandma forgot some rolls, so I'm going to head to the store. And, and someone says, well, I'll go with you. No, 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 I don't need anybody. <laughs> I'll be just fine. I'll be right back. And you go get some space, and you're by yourself. And then you have the inside job. This is when you just can't get away. You can't leave the house. So you look for that card table with that puzzle on there, and you go sit down, and hopefully nobody will talk to you, and you just kind of work on that puzzle. So there you have it. If you're an introvert, you can send me a thank you note later. Uh, If you want to read more about it, it's in this book by Sophia Demling. Just came out a few months ago, The Introvert's Way, Living a Quiet Life in a Noisy World. All right, there was no charge for that. That was just a bonus. Now we get to why we're here this morning. It's Christmas, and the whole world is going to be celebrating Christmas. How many of them really know who is Jesus? That's the question. I read about a Christmas Eve service at a church where they featured a monologue, and the character was Joseph, 
They used his character in this monologue. And it was just moments after the birth of Jesus. So he's got a baby in his arms. And he's speaking to this baby. He looked into the face of the baby with all the musings of a new father. And he playfully talked about his resemblance to his mother. And then he paused. And in all seriousness, he whispered, I wonder what your father looks like. One could probably sense that hundreds in that audience echoed those same sentiments. Throughout history, artists, sculptors, scholars, writers, all who have read the life of Jesus have wondered what did he look like. Interestingly enough, those who actually saw him took the search a step further. They asked him the question, show us the Father. Actually, one of the first questions the disciples asked Jesus was, where do you live? Now, he could have had some fun with that one, couldn't he? You will never believe if I tell you. Whether it's the Jesus of history or the God of creation... Many have wondered what he looked like. We have been blessed with intellect and senses that long to know him, that long to feel him, to hear him, and to see him. God in his wisdom and grace has created us that way. But at the same time, he has given our imagination both liberty and limitation. He cautioned us never To make a graven image. We are not to make any images, any idols, any representations of God. He told us that in the Ten Commandments very early in his relationship with the children of Israel. Why did God say not to make an image? Because it reduces God. It brings him down to our level. Even though a person is exalted when you carve him in stone like they did with Martin Luther King uh, recently in Washington, D.C. But when it comes to God, we are warned and we are forbidden that we should not attempt to make an image of God because it lowers him. It brings him down to the limited, sinful, finite imagination of man. As one author says, Circumscribing God is fraught with the peril of our own prejudice to say nothing of it being contradictory. The scriptures tell us very little about Jesus' physical appearance and with good reason. However, the scriptures are filled with information about his person, his character, who he is, and his relationship with the Father. And as we explore all this content, we come to understand his heart, his love for mankind, his desire for the nations, and his response to the cry of every human heart. So who is this Jesus? Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. That's a song we used to sing when I was younger. Some of you old-timers might remember that. I see a couple of you not. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who... I'm supposed to be preaching, not singing. (laughs) Finding out who Jesus is 
ought to be the paramount quest of every man, woman, and child because from that knowledge flows the answers that have been sought by mankind ever since the dawn of history. Who is this Jesus? Well, I want to share with you three observations from the Gospel of John as to who Jesus is. The first one is that Jesus is God from eternity past. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, if you would. Now, the reason we're turning to the Gospel of John is because John wrote this book with a very specific purpose. And I want you to turn to John chapter 20 at the very end of the book. That is one of the best pieces of music I've heard. The rustling of the pages of scripture. Beautiful. John chapter 20. And I want you to look at verse 30 and 31. John says... Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So there were many things that are not written in this book. Now look at verse 31. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So you see, John had a specific purpose in writing his gospel. He wanted to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now it's interesting, but Matthew and Luke begin the story of Jesus when he first appears on our planet. But John begins with the creation of all the planets. Matt and Luke take a more classical historical approach, but John takes a bold new approach. He takes his readers to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning. John takes us to the beginning of the Bible where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That is, before God even created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ existed. The word there is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God from eternity past. He is the pre-existent Son of God. In fact, literally, it says in the Greek text, which is the original text of the scriptures, literally in the original text of the Bible, here's how it says, in beginning was being the Logos. Logos, of course, is the word, a very significant word during the time of John. And so notice it does not say in the beginning. The original text says in beginning was being the Logos. So John, by leaving out the article the, is what he's saying is we cannot identify a past moment to call beginning. So he's pointing to something that existed before eternity passed, farther back than our finite minds can even fathom. He's pointing to something that existed way back before the earth, before the planets, before the stars, before light and darkness, before matter or time, in a beginning that never really had a beginning. The word was already existing. Jesus Christ had no starting point. He was eternally existing. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I'm convinced 
I don't need any more proof to know that Jesus Christ is God from eternity past and beyond. But there might be somebody here this morning that says, well, I want some more proof. I got it. Turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now this is a very intense argument. Okay? Jesus is arguing with the Jews. And they're going back and forth. And it's getting pretty heated. Notice with me in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Whoa. Take it easy, guys. It's Jesus. Come on. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Surely, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you think you are? Maybe your, your Bible doesn't say that. That's, that's what he said. He said, who do you think you are? And Jesus said, calm down. That's what he said. Jesus answered in verse 54, I glorify myself. My glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. You're talking about knowing my Father, and you talk, call him God. You don't even know him. Look at verse 55. You have not come to know him. And then notice what he says, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Man, this is really hot. He says, I do know him and I keep his word. And then he says in verse 56, you're, you're talking about Abraham? I got something to tell you about Abraham. Listen, listen, you, whatever you called him. Listen up. 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And what's he talking about here? What he's saying is Abraham, who was a friend of God, by faith saw that Christ was going to come. The Messiah who was going to save the world, save the people of their sins. Abraham saw Jesus by faith and rejoiced. The Jews therefore said to him, You're not even 50 years old. And you say you've seen Abraham? Wait a minute. How old are you? And he said, never mind. (laughs) He makes this amazing, amazing statement in the next verse, in verse 58. In verse 58, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, now that's not even proper grammar in English. Before Abraham was born, I am. This is an amazing, amazing statement. You see, the word I am refers to the name of God. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, when God told Moses to go to the pharaohs in Egypt 
and tell them to, let the, to release the children of Israel, to let his people go. And Moses said to God, well, what do I tell them? Who sent me? And God answered Moses and said, tell them I am that I am. Tell them that I am that I am sent you. The word I am is the name of God. It is so holy that the Jews will not say it with their mouths. And so we have this thing called the tetragrammaton, which is you take the four letters and you come up with the word Yahweh. The Jews will say Adonai or Elohim in Hebrew. They don't say the word of God because this is God. This is the Holy One. This is the only, this is the creator of the world. In fact, uh, Dr. Homer Kent, who is one of my favorite authors, he says that by using the timeless I am, rather than I was, Jesus conveyed not only the idea of existence prior to Abraham, but timelessness, which is the very nature of God. You know, the Jews understood what Jesus was saying. Because what did they do in the very next verse in John 59? They took up stones to kill him. They picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he was making himself to be God. He was blaspheming. My friends, how ironic that these Jewish leaders who were so passionate about honoring God were ready to cast stones on a blasphemer. They were in fact accusing God himself of blaspheming God. Have no doubt, my friends, that Jesus Christ is God. But the climax of the book comes, now turn back to John chapter 1, where we're going to be the rest of our time. John chapter 1. The climax of this book comes in John 1 and verse 14, which leads us to our second observation, which is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in simple words, God became a man. The word who was in the beginning with God, who was God, now becomes flesh. That's what Christmas is about. Theologians refer to this as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word carnal, the English word carnal, comes from the Latin word carnalis, meaning of the flesh. Sometimes when you go to the store and you want to buy chili... And it says, chili con carne. You know what that is. Carne means meat. So this is God becoming man, the incarnation. Verse 14 is the most concise biblical statement of the incarnation. And therefore, one of the most significant verses in all of scripture. Jesus Christ is God in human form. What an incredible thought. Isn't this an incredible thought that God became a man? Isn't that amazing? God took on humanity. God took on skin and bones, a human form. The infinite becomes finite. Eternity enters time. The invisible becomes visible. 
the creator of this universe enters his creation. The king of kings becomes a man, not only a man, but a servant. Jesus Christ became a servant. Now, if you have never grown up in a culture that has servants, you may not get the full weight of this. But we had servants in our home. In India, everybody has servants. Even the poor people have somebody to help them. It's a job and you help them. And you get to know your servants. As believers in Jesus Christ, we loved our servants. We developed a good relationship with them. We tried to share the gospel with them. But the servant is the bottom of the totem pole. Jesus Christ became a servant. Becoming a man is one thing, but becoming a servant is another. It's the lowest you can get. And we're talking about this pre-existent son of God who lived from way back. We can't even describe. There is no beginning. This omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe becomes a servant. That's an amazing thought. It blows my mind. And the whole world's going to go celebrate Christmas and they don't even know who Jesus is. It should make you bow down and worship. What a glorious, glorious plan for God to become a man so he could save us from our sins. The God of the Bible is not some lofty, way up there, transcendent deity, impersonable, unreachable, wanting to keep his distance kind of a God. The God of the Bible loves us. He wants to reveal himself to us. I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, The Life of Pi. If you haven't seen it, don't go. I was forced to go see it because a bunch of, bunch of people saw it and they wanted to talk to me about it because it's a whole bunch of philosophy and it's basically Indian philosophy. And, and uh, so they, because I'm from India, they wanted to talk to me. They want to ask me about it. So I went and saw it and I thought, uh, okay, it was all right. Good cinematography in it. But there's one statement in it. It's, it, it's the story of this Indian guy And he explores all these different religions. And one statement he makes, he says, In Hinduism, I found faith. But in Christianity, I found love. That's an interesting thought. But it's pretty much all mixed up. In the end, you come away thinking, just, whatever. (laughs) That's the theme of the movie, whatever. It's the conclusion, and it's the word my kids used to say all the time. Whatever. (laughs) The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know the word, when it says became, in the Greek text, the word is ginomai. And it, it does not imply that he became something else and he changed what he was. In, in fact, it doesn't apply that he ceased to be God. Rather, it means that he added the condition of humanity to what he already was. That's the meaning of that word when it says he became flesh. 
Christ entered a new dimension of existence through the gateway of human birth and took up his residence with men. John makes it very clear. Jesus Christ became a man with skin and bones. The eternal entered the realm of time and space to experience life as it is for the creatures that he created. God has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in Old Testament scriptures. But more supremely, he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. I want you to look at this scripture with me. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. Notice what it says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, this is throughout history, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Jesus Christ is the creator. He made the world through him. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus. That is God in human flesh. And now to the word of becoming flesh. God took on the condition of humanity. The eternal entered the realm of time. And I love this hymn. Notice the words that he let us in. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Isn't that wonderful? This is Christmas. Veiled in flesh. Here is God covered with flesh. It's, it's the Godhead. Notice the theology there. It's the triune God. In flesh. And hail the incarnate deity. We hail him. Because this is deity incarnated. God in the flesh. And he was pleased to become a man. And to dwell with man. Jesus our Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Jesus is God with us. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Now the word dwelt. Means to pitch a tent. That's, that's my version. It means to dwell temporarily. When I pitch a tent, it's very temporary. The eternal son became a man and he dwelt among us for 33 years. He lived among us for 33 years on this earth. So people could see who God is. And if you, if, if you look at this metaphorically, it would suggest the temporary nature of Christ's earthly presence with us. He dwelt among us. He pitched his tent. He dwelt among us. And this, by the way, notice how John switches now to the first person and he says, and we beheld his glory. All of a sudden he changes the grammar. All the time he's talking about this is Jesus and then we, he includes himself. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's true, John was an eyewitness. He saw the glory of Jesus. In fact, he saw the glory on more than one occasion, many times. So what we read here is not some speculation or some philosophical concept thrust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we are seeing here is John is bearing witness to experiential reality. 
and we beheld his glory. And by the way, the word that is used for beheld in the Greek text, it's more than just seeing. There are different words. There's actually 13 or 14 words in Greek to look, to see. The word used here is to contemplate, to experience. We experienced the presence of Jesus. In fact, what he saw was the glory of God the Father displayed through the person and words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Glory of the only begotten, only begotten, monogamous, one of a kind, unique. Unique, why? Because of his special relationship to God the Father. That's why he was the only begotten, a very unique, unique son. God's personal revelation of himself in Jesus Christ has no parallel anywhere. The one and only unique son. Full of grace and truth. And that leads us to our third observation. That Jesus not only was God from eternity past. He's God in the flesh. But Jesus is God in all his fullness. In fact, verse 16, notice... For of his fullness we have received. And then of course Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 is so clear. It says for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is fully God. He's full of grace and truth. Grace and truth epitomize the word. As the revealer of the Father. The two attributes that are most closely connected with salvation are grace and truth. We receive God's saving grace by believing in his truth. There is no salvation grace except to those who believe the truth of the gospel message. You know, it's very interesting. When I was in the country of Jordan... A few years ago, I went up to Mount Nebo. And uh, Mount Nebo is where God took Moses to show him the promised land. And you can see the country of Israel from this vantage point in the country of Jordan. And there up on Mount Nebo, they had this memorial to Moses. And isn't it interesting? It's a staff with a serpent. And if you remember the story from the Old Testament... Uh, when the serpents came and Moses held up his staff and if you looked on the staff by faith, you did not die. You were healed. You didn't get bitten by the serpents. And what's interesting to me is even today, what is the symbol for medicine? Isn't that interesting? Today in the 21st century, it ties back to this, to this, to what happened with Moses in the Old Testament. Today, the symbol for medicine is like a staff and a serpent. Isn't that fascinating? But what, it, what I was attracted to was this sign, this plaque on the rock right below this uh, in Jordan. And it says in Arabic and English, For while the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And even has a reference, John 1.17, in a Muslim country in Jordan. How about that? Glorifying Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's the truth. We have been blessed by God's grace. 
In fact, look at the many ways we've been blessed. The gospel is the gospel of the grace of God, Acts chapter 20. We are justified as a gift by his grace, Romans chapter 3. We are blessed according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians chapter 1. We are saved by grace, Ephesians chapter 2. Grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, 2 Timothy 1. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You know, there's two kinds of grace. There's common grace and there's special grace. Common grace is for everybody, even non-believers, even those who are not Christians. Common grace is when God gives us sunshine and he gives rain. He makes the crops to grow. That's common grace. Everybody has that. But then there's special grace. And the special grace is for those who believe in Jesus, who have put their faith and trust in him, who can experience that grace of God that can transform one's life and give you new life and give you a peace that cannot be explained. Grace is God's matchless mercy and favor toward men. That's God's grace. Truth depicts his fidelity to his promises. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's grace. All that was necessary for salvation is found in Jesus Christ. He is also the full expression of God's truth. All the foreshadowing, the prophecy, the types, the pictures, all of that stuff in the Old Testament is now realized in the person of Jesus Christ, as we just saw in Hebrews chapter 1. That is why he could say in John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said that. Nobody else has ever said those kind of things. No other religion. No other religious founder. Muhammad didn't say it. Buddha didn't say it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And he said in John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are free. But there are so many people who are bound in their religious systems. They don't have that peace and that freedom. They have to do these things. They have all these ceremonies they have to do. They have rituals they have to do. They're bound. But the scriptures say, come and see the truth and know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are free because we're not bound by law anymore. It is now the grace of God that gives us freedom. Jesus Christ is God in all his fullness. Of his fullness we all have received. He provides for all our needs. And his supply is never exhausting or diminished. Grace will follow grace in a limitless, never-ending flow. And then in verse 17, the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullness of that of the law, which was only a foreshadowing, for the law was given through Moses. Grace triumphed over law. The law saves no one. It only convicts people of sin and the inability to keep the righteous standards. And that is why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, Therefore, the law has become our tutor. 
to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law cannot save us. It is all the grace of God. And Jesus came to reveal God to us and reveal that grace to us. And then verse 18, look at verse 18 on John chapter 1. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So, no one has seen God at any time. God is invisible, not because he's unreal, but because our physical eyes are incapable of detecting him. It is through Jesus Christ that the image of the invisible God becomes visible. Colossians 1.15 Jesus Christ, the word, is the fullest revelation of the Father. It's the highest revelation of God. And that is why he could say in John chapter 14 and verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And when he says, in the bosom... That's a phrase that indicates intimacy. There's a oneness. There's a sharing of the nature with God the Father. Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. It also reminds us of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They were together. God, who cannot be known unless He reveals Himself, became most fully known because Jesus has explained him. Jesus is the explanation of God. Somebody asks you, what is God like? Tell them, just go look at Jesus. That's what God is like. In fact, in verse 18, when it says that um, he has explained him, that Greek word in the original text of the Bible, we get the word exegesis from that word. That means expounding. Interpreting the scriptures, exegetical Bible study, or as we say, expository preaching, which is what you get here at Grace. Expounding the scriptures. So Jesus is the only one qualified to exegete and interpret God to man. The life and words of Jesus are more than just an announcement. They are an explanation of God. So... Who is this Jesus? According to John, he is the only true God, pre-existent from eternity past, who entered our world in the flesh in all of God's fullness. That's who Jesus is. Now that you know who he is, how are you going to respond to him? You know, it's never too late to respond. And we found that out last Sunday. Did we not? As Brad Evans shared the story of his father. His father with a rock-solid heart. A rancher, a farmer. And as soon as Brad wanted to talk to him, he said, Are you going to thump the Bible at me again? And he says, No, Dad. But God gave him the opportunity. God opened the door. And at 83 years of age, Bob Evans trusted Christ. And experienced the grace of God. Christmas, in essence, is an invitation. It's an invitation because God has arrived. God has entered time and space. And he's looking for you. He has a gift for you. It's free. 
I want you to pay attention. The fact that God became a man shows the value and dignity of human life. The coming of Christ as an infant in Bethlehem puts flesh on humanity's worth and puts God in humanity's weakness. To be captive, there is no other freedom. The gift of a son into the hands that would harm him presents a most sacrificial gift and a striking invitation to sacrifice everything to get it. I like how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says that the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent. As well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Wow. He has a wonderful way of putting it. That's the invitation. That's what Christmas is all about. God invites you if you don't know him. As the old uh, Christmas carol goes, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Christmas is about remembering the one who came in person. God in the person of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. God who stepped into history via a soiled stable to show us our soiled hearts. Who touched the unclean and claimed the untouched. Who demonstrates his stupendous, astounding, everlasting, eternal love for us. By becoming a man so that he could die on a cross for our sins. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch. His treasure. This Christmas, let's not forget the greatest gift ever given. The gift of a Savior. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Our Father, Almighty God, we thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song, and in prayer, and in the reading of your word, and in the meditation of your word this morning. We thank you for Christmas and for this season that reminds us of who you are, why you came, and this amazing love of yours. Father, I pray that each one of us will 
use this opportunity to share this precious, precious truth with others, with those who don't know, so that they too might experience this peace, this grace of God, and this eternal life to live forever. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all those who are sharing during this time throughout the world. Bless their efforts. And thank you for being with us this morning. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you all. Have a Merry Christmas.